The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everyone. I'm Morgan Brennan in for Kelly Evans. And here is what's ahead. The Dow snapping its 13-day winning streak yesterday, but it's higher again today as key inflation data came in at its lowest level in almost two years. Does this strengthen the case for tabling rate hikes for the remainder of 2023? We're going to discuss that. Online education company Coursera reporting better than expected results and strong guidance, sending those shares higher by as much as 15% today. We're going to talk to the CEO about integrating AI into the platform and Coursera's new partnerships. It's a good read on labor, too. Plus, the great restaurant revamp. National chains making big changes as macro pressures persist, but we begin with today's market action. John Dom Chu has the numbers with all the major averages higher for the week. Decidedly green, kind of bouncing back a little from that mixed one that we had yesterday, Morgan. But overall, <laughs> it's pretty good. If you take a look at the markets right now, we're just kind of towards the session highs right now. The Dow Industrial is up about one half of 1%, 205 points to the upside. 35,484 is the last trade. The S&P 500, 45.80 the last trade, up 43 points, 1% higher. And the Nasdaq really outperforming today, up nearly 2%, three quarter percent right now, 253 points to the upside, meaning the Nasdaq Composite sits right at 14,303. That tech trade really standing out. Now, Communication services was the best performing sector in the S&P 500 over the course of the last week, up about 5%. Coming in second place right now is materials. You may recall that just within the last week, we saw some of the big jumps in some of the corrugated cardboard names like Westrock or Packaging Corp of America or International Paper. Driving the materials trade, they're up about 2% for the week. And then utilities, the worst performing sector, down about 2%. So at least some bulls feel a little bit more comfortable with the market action, seeing economically sensitive sectors like communication services, like materials outperforming, and defensive ones like utilities really underperforming over the course of the last week. And the stock of the day right now driving a lot of the Dow's gains, a lot of the outperformance. Procter & Gamble, big consumer brands, it's up about 2.5%, and that's well off the session highs. We were up almost double that at one point today. Procter & Gamble comes out with Profits and revenues that both top analyst expectations driven by its ability to raise prices and pass those higher prices on to distributors and ultimately consumers. That brand power powering P&G, even though Morgan, the full year revenue forecast came in shy of some estimates, they're still accentuating the positive investors are. So up two and a half percent P&G, your stock of the day. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom Chu, thank you. The Fed's key inflation metric coming in cooler than expected today. June PCE increasing by just two tenths of a percent from the previous month, while core PCE rose 4.1 percent from a year ago. That was the smallest increase in nearly two years. So to further signs that inflation is cooling, keep both future rate hikes at bay and a soft landing in view. Joining me now is Greg Daco, Chief Economist at EY Parthenon, and Kim Forrest, Chief Investment Officer at Boca Capital Partners. Good afternoon to both of you. Greg, I'll put that very question to you. Soft landing still on the table here? 
I think it's very much on the table after this week's data. Uh, we have uh, evidence that the economy did relatively well in the second quarter. GDP growth was higher than expected. We have consumers that are still spending, albeit with a little bit more caution. And we have uh, headline inflation, core inflation, and wage growth that are all moving in the right direction. So overall, the pathway uh, to a soft landing is still very much possible. There are, of course, still headwinds in terms of the economy. But I think uh, dreaming about that soft landing is, is very much uh, something that we can do today. Yeah. And Kim, it certainly seems like investors are doing that today. Stocks are higher again. Uh, we're poised to end the day higher on the week for all the major averages a- as well. Uh, how much more room do we have to run, especially when you start to factor in valuations? Yes, I realize earnings season has been better than expected largely so far, but, but it's pretty rich here, this market. Well, I always, because uh, I'm a perma bull at a certain point, <laughs> that glass is always half empty, or I'm sorry, always half full for me. But I do think that if you go outside of the winners so far this year, there are a lot of companies that are reporting higher than uh, expected earnings and more importantly, revenue. And most important, they're guiding higher for this year. So looking forward, it looks like the much anticipated recession is not on the table. And I think if you are a very long-term holder of stocks, you're going to be shopping in the unlooked, un, unlooked at and unloved market areas of the year. And that is what you should do. Greg, uh, Chair Powell this week was pretty clear in saying that we've got eight more weeks with many more data points to come uh, for the Fed to make its decisions on, on whether to hike again and what that looks like through the rest of the year. Goldilocks data so far, more to come, I get that. But what do you think? Are we done here? I think we're done in terms of the the Fed hiking cycle. Uh, This was uh, likely the last rate hike that we saw from the Fed. Uh, Of course, it was very hawkish uh, in in terms of communication. Uh, Fed Chair Powell made sure that uh, he avoided a situation where markets would price in the end of uh, this rate tightening cycle. Um, we still have markets that are still pricing that, but he was uh, sure to, to indicate that policymakers could still raise rates even in September if the data warranted it. As you noted, we have two more CPI reports, two more jobs reports that are going to come due before the next September meeting. So there's a lot of data to come through. I would note that we're not necessarily in a Goldilocks economy. We are seeing signs of a slowdown in terms of the overall momentum of private sector demand. But that slowdown is coming along with an environment where inflation is surprising in terms of the disinflationary dynamics being faster than the consensus expected. So it's a nuanced message. There are still headwinds in terms of the economy. We're not out of the woods yet. We should not celebrate for that soft landing yet. But there is high hope that in this environment, the Fed may be done in terms of tightening and may be contemplating policy recalibration with rate cuts sometime at the end of the first quarter in 2024. Kim, do you think that's being reflected in the bond market right now? I mean, there is that argument circulating that perhaps Treasury yields have peaked here. And if so, again, what does that mean for stocks? Well, we price our um, stocks based on, well, I'm not alone in this, um, looking at the cash flows and then discounting them backwards. If we think this is the peak, which I agree with your guess that I think uh, we're done for now or close enough to done, um, I think that we can live in this environment. And if the interest rate environment is lower for whatever reason, and you're a long-term holder of stocks, again, that will reprice 
in your favor where there's upward motion or upward you know, headroom available in the valuation of stocks. Because again, we use that 10 year as a, uh, uh, you know, the inflation rate or the rate at which to um, discount those cash flows. So looking pretty good at this point. Got it. Um, Greg, a final question for you, and, and that is uh, we've seen this China reopening, but maybe not as strong as had been anticipated. The ECB is going through its own tightening right now as well. A lot of focus on Japan, given what we've seen with uh, yield curve controls uh, in the last, uh, or I guess I should say, say overnight with the central bank there as well. How does all of this factor back into the growth picture or impact the growth picture as well here in the U.S.? Well, I think there are two elements here to highlight. The first one is that we have uh, global growth divergence, which is highly unusual um, because the degree of divergence is quite significant. The U.S. economy is still moving forward, albeit at a, a bit of a slower pace. Uh, the European economies are seeing some recessions in some industrial, industrially heavy uh, economies like Germany, but still strong momentum in terms of the, the tourism heavy uh, economies like Spain and Portugal. And then in Asia, we have the Asian giant, which is China, which is really um, not seeing much of a boost uh, from the reopening. So that is leading to a slower global backdrop for the U.S. economy. In terms of monetary policy, we had some divergence uh, between the European Central Bank, the Fed and the Bank of Japan. Some of that has narrowed, which should favor the yen going forward. Um, but we still have the Bank of China that is contemplating easing monetary policy because the risk there is not inflation, but deflation with consumer prices barely growing in an economy that is really in a bit of a slump. All right. Greg Daco, thanks for joining us. Kim, Thank you. while we have you, it's been a long, you've been a long time believer in Intel. We know that name has been shooting higher today after reported surprise profit, a beat on revenue in the second quarter. It's now just 8%. From the 52-week highs, shares are up about 6% right now. Here's what CEO Pat Gelsinger told our John Fort about PC demand. We did see a little bit, uh, you know, weaker at the low end, education, you know, a little bit more pressure uh, there. Uh, but uh, the higher end uh, price points where we're stronger, as well as uh, a bit more uh, strength in the uh, commercial segment uh, and in a small and medium business, all of those put together, you know, resulted in a very solid quarter for us. And we continue to see that strength as we uh, go into the second half of the year. And again, good market share uh, gains as we've had multiple quarters in a row of gaining share in the PC business. And I'll say the sum of that is, is we're back to historic levels of market share in uh, our core business of PCs. All right. So PC stabilizing, Kim, that's good news. And certainly you can say there's some green shoots. This is a company that's been hit hard over the last couple of years. Gelsinger was brought in to engineer this multi-year turnaround process. Do you stick with the stock here or do you take some profit? Um. At this point, well, it depends on how much you have, right? We think if you have a lot of this stock, and to me that's over 7%, it's always a great time to take a little risk off the table. But that being said, if you're a long-term holder, and let me define that by three to five years, I think that's fair to give this stock that much time to recover and become what it's going to become, which is not just a provider of server and PC chips, but also a fab to other high-end chip designers. So keep that in mind. So that is why I would stay in this stock. Um, it's good that the PC cycle is improving, but I don't think that's why you stay in or get out. That's just one bit of information 
because the longer term play is uh, this company can diversify globally on manufacturing um, facilities. And I think that's important lesson that we learned in COVID. Don't tie yourself to any one region. And um, I, I think Pat is the person to lead the company through this transition. Yeah, uh, it's a key point, the, the role that geopolitics plays in all of this as well, and perhaps pointing to maybe some of the recent weakness that's been seen in names like Taiwan Semi. To, I mean, are there other names that you would be invested in or are invested in uh, in the semiconductor space? I guess how broad-based is the potential rally we could see here um, and how tied to, to the economy is it? Well, it's a little, it's always tied to the economy, right? This is uh, stuff that people are buying when they're flush. You don't buy a new phone if you think you're gonna get laid off. That is one consideration. But I think there's this undercurrent of AI that is finally bubbling up and it is a topic for a lot of companies. And this is where I believe strong growth is gonna be, not just for Intel, but just about every player in this marketplace. Earlier today, Pat Gelsinger had some comments about how you know they're playing in this area, but I think it's really important to understand there's chips that you develop the mathematical models, otherwise known as AI, on, and then there's the chips that either get information into these systems or, better yet, get the systems out to usable um, applications somewhere in the world. And what is it? It's chips, chips, chips. We also like Micron because it's memory. And if there's one thing AI models need, it's data. And you got to store that data somewhere. And we like NAND devices, N-A-N-D, for uh, storing information. All right. Some names for our viewers to check out here. And of course, uh, we get AMD results next week, too. So that's going to be a key one to watch. Uh, Kim Forrest with Boca Capital Partners. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Okay, well, speaking of chips, the Senate just passing the annual defense bill that includes a provision that would speed up the approval of semiconductor factories here in the U.S. Keep in mind, this is just the Senate side. Uh, Emily Wilkins is in Washington with the details. Hi, Emily. Hey, Morgan. Well, as you point out, this is just the Senate side, but it's still a big win uh, for chip companies looking to build facilities in the U.S. The Senate approved an expedited permitting process last night. Uh, Congress allocated, as you remember, $52 billion last year to make sure that semiconductors were made in America. But that new money came with a catch. Companies would need to undergo an in-depth environmental review process that could delay construction for more than two years. Senator Mark Kelly, whose state of Arizona will be home to a new chip fabrication plant, said the proposal would cut through the red tape to prevent delays in manufacturing while requiring companies to follow clean air and water laws. To avoid the longer permitting process, companies must break ground by next winter or have received a federal loan or have less than 10 percent of the project covered by federal funds. The bill also allows the Commerce Secretary to offer specific companies exemptions. The measure passed as a part of a larger defense policy bill, but it still has hurdles to clear. The House passed their own defense policy bill last week, and now the two sides need to come together and negotiate a single bill. But Morgan Senator Kelly says he's hopeful that the final bill will contain the streamlined review for chip manufacturers. Yeah, defense policy is always a fun one because you have the NDAA, which is actually the policy bill, and then you have to go through the appropriations policy and actually fund that bill. Um, I, I'm and just we've got problems with both of them. Big, big fights coming up in D.C. Which was exactly my question for you, which is how how likely is it now 
uh, that we could potentially see another continuing resolution, so, so a temporary funding measure, um, to be able to get all of this hashed out or even the potential of a government shutdown, which some analysts are, are, are already floating. I mean, I think you have to keep both things on the table at this point. We saw this past week, um, you know that for the appropriations, it's a big package, so they break it on down into 12 little bite-sized pieces. One of those bite-sized pieces the House wanted to get done this year, but they were held up by those group of hardline conservatives who have some issues with the top-line spending numbers. And so that bill wasn't able to go through. So it looks like we are probably going to have to have that sort of patchwork continuing resolution to get us to the end of the year when hopefully something can be figured out, but I don't think anyone at this point has taken the idea of a government shutdown off the table. We're just going to have to see what Congress does this fall and into the winter. All right. Sounds like you've got a busy couple of months ahead of you. Emily Wilkins, thanks for bringing us the latest. Thank you. Well, strategic competition continues to be a focal point in both Washington and on Wall Street. Today on Overtime, we're going to discuss how the U.S. can stay ahead of China technologically speaking and militarily speaking. We are joined by Lux Capital co-founder Josh Wolf. Don't want to miss that. Coming up, investors giving Coursera an A-plus for its Q2 results. Shares spiking 14% after the EdTech firm raised its full-year guidance. What is behind the bullishness? We're going to ask the CEO next. Plus, the quote-unquote messy of AI. That's what one analyst is calling this stock, initiating coverage with an outperform rating, seeing more than 50% upside. And this is a name that's moved a lot already this year. It's more than doubled in the past three months. Can you guess what it is? Tweet me or X me your guess, and we'll reveal it when the analyst joins me to make his case. The Exchange, back after this. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. the exchange, shares of EdTech platform Coursera up about 14, 14.5% right now after posting a stronger than expected results, raising the full year revenue guidance. The company also catching some positive analyst coverage, including an upgrade to overweight at Cantor Fitzgerald today. Coursera has no sell ratings, according to FactSet. For more, let's bring in Coursera CEO Jeff Maggiancalda for more. Jeff, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, okay, I want to start with you. Have, you have three main segments. Consumer is your biggest. It's also one that grew the most, up twenty five percent year on year in terms of revenue. What's driving that? You know, I think the big story is sort of the story that you've been covering, which is the the world is changing faster and faster because of technology, and this creates opportunities and threats for countries, for businesses, and for individual job roles. And the difference between change being a threat versus an opportunity is whether people can learn the skills 
to take advantage of this change. And so people are coming to Coursera because they want to get skills and get jobs that pay more and are more flexible. That's really what's driving the consumer segment. Interesting. So it's reskilling, it's upskilling, uh, and it's people taking the initiative to do that themselves rather than go through their businesses. And I, I ask that because I know you have an enterprise business as well, but, but analysts have noted that challenges have, uh, have persisted to some, some degree there. Yeah, you know, what we're seeing is that there's a certain kind of um, a certificate program on Coursera called professional certificates. And these are created by industry leaders like Google and IBM. We just launched two job role training programs from Microsoft. And this is in cybersecurity, UX design, project management, et cetera. People really are coming for these job training certificates because they want to switch into these careers. Institutions on the business side are seeing a lot of macroeconomic headwinds there. They're tightening budgets. Uh, on the business side, but you know, governments and campuses, universities also are in that enterprise segment, and they're actually buying these certificates at pretty high rates. So it's mostly a business-related headwind in Europe and North America that's hurting some of our enterprise segment growth. So when we talk about some of this education and some of, some of these skilling opportunities, how much is AI playing a role in that and, and people wanting to get their arms around that type of technological capability? You know, I would say it's really just starting. The, okay. the biggest search term on Coursera is AI, but what people are really buying are certificates and training programs for new jobs. And there's not really, you know, a, a prompt engineer job that's in really high demand yet. It's, it's more along the lines of UX designer, software engineer, things like that. But the AI is going to create huge displacement of workers. I mean, report after report from Michigan to OpenAI to McKinsey, everyone is saying, that virtually every job is going to have to reskill in order to really take advantage of this new technology. It's interesting because just a couple of months ago, there seemed to be this sense, at least among some investors, that chat GPT was going to become something that actually hurt ed tech companies because people were not going to be looking to do the work themselves. They were going to be looking to outsource it to some of these new generative AI models. Um, that hasn't necessarily happened, and I realize some of the tech is still kind of buggy right now. And instead, companies like yours are doing things like virtual learning assistance. I guess you see this overall as a positive and an opportunity for Coursera. Yeah, it, it, right, exactly. For Coursera, I think it is a positive and it's an opportunity. But part of that is because of you know the product that we offer to the market. You know, we work with the top universities and industries to basically do job skilling programs with certification and college degrees. And so... We do see that people are coming because they feel that there's more opportunity because of the change. Uh, and, and what we've been doing with AI is building personalized, interactive learning tutors to help people learn more effectively. But the certificate and degree still come from you know, recognized brands. And we're also building um, sort of content generation course building tools so that our partners can, can deliver higher quality courses you know, more quickly. So for us, it seems like AI is turning out to be a great thing. And we just launched 2,000 courses in seven languages for all the non-English speaking people around the world who want access to the Coursera content. And, and, and AI is great for language translation and, and getting better every day. Mm. Um, the degree segment for you, it grew 10%. This is the second uh, straight quarter that you've seen year on year uh, growth, sales growth uh, in that segment. How, how big of an opportunity is that, especially if you are starting to see a labor market that is beginning perhaps, at least here in the US, perhaps starting to loosen a little bit. Yeah, yeah. what we see is that the overall market for people paying tuition for a college degree globally is about $2 trillion. There's about 220 million people who are paying tuition for a college degree. So it's, it's an enormous market. But what we found is that for working people, college degrees are expensive. 
They're not very convenient. You often have to quit your job. Sometimes you have to move your family and people say it's, it's not, it's not going to be a product that I'm going to be find very available. But what we've been doing is working with universities to create a new kind of a degree where there are pathways to the degree from open content on Coursera. So you can start your work on Coursera and then have it count uh, towards an online degree that you can earn at a much lower cost and much more flexibility. So we think that the market opportunity for this degree is really great. Okay, final question for you. We mentioned Cantor Fitzgerald upgraded uh, the stock today to, to overweight. One of the things that they point out is that you have some segments that are counter-cyclical, some that are cyclical. I mean, is this, is this a growth story, Coursera, no matter what the macroeconomic environment because of that? My job is to make sure it's a growth story. And what it really started with was the founders the day they, the day they started Coursera. I mean, we are here to provide universal access to everyone in the world. The need's never been greater. The market is huge. And, and we got to figure out how to get that job done. Okay. Jeff Magian Calda, thanks for joining me. CEO of Coursera. Thanks for, thanks for having me. All right. Stock's up double digits right now. Well, coming up, record temperatures could mean record profits for pest control companies. Bet you didn't see that coming. The investing opportunities in a potential multi-billion dollar bug boom, that's ahead. And as we go to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with Intel leading the way. It's up more than 5% right now. Walgreens, Cisco, Chevron, the biggest laggards. The Exchange, be back after this. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... <laughs> 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. I want to draw your attention to shares of Charter. Those are sitting near session lows after its CFO announced the, on the conference call that it will raise prices by $5 for its Spectrum broadband in an effort to offset continued declines in TV customers. Shares are down about 2.5% right now. It's Charter's second increase in nine months, and it's the third carrier to hike prices just this week, following in Verizon's and AT&T's footsteps as well. And you can see... Shares of AT&T are lower right now. Verizon is up about 1%. Now let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Hi, Tyler. All right, uh, Morgan, thank you. It's being called the biggest change in generations to the country's uniform code of military justice. President Biden signing an executive order to implement reforms that the White House says will significantly strengthen how the military handles sexual assault cases. Specialized independent military prosecutors will now be in charge of making key decisions about serious cases rather than military commanders. The prosecutors will handle cases including sexual assault, domestic violence and murder. The White House says this shift is the, quote, most significant transformation since the framework was established way back in 1950. Migrants are wading past that floating barrier installed by Texas in the Rio Grande, which was supposed to slow migration into the U.S. The migrants are going past the buoys and climbing over the wire installed on the riverbank. The Justice Department is suing Texas over the 1,000-foot barrier, claiming it violates federal law. And vendors for the 75th Primetime Emmys were told that the September ceremony will be postponed. 
Variety reports that news. The news comes as Hollywood remains shut down uh, from the writer's strike and the actor's strike. It's the first time the awards ceremony has been postponed since 2001. Morgan, back to you. All right, Tyler, we'll see you next hour. Coming up, messy mania spreading from Miami to Wall Street with one analyst labeling this stock the messy of AI. We'll tell you what it is and why it's expected to be a major player in the space for years to come. The Exchange will be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Palantir. Many of you guessed this online, climbing about 6% today after a bullish initiation from Wedbush. The firm saying it's the messy of AI on the golden track to success. Shares already more than doubling in just the last three months. Let's bring in the analyst behind that call, Dan Ives, Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. Also, CNBC's Steve Kovac is going to join the conversation. Uh, great to have you both here. Dan, the messy of AI. I mean, that's a, that's a tall order right there. I think that's really what CARP's built. And, and in my opinion, it's still undiscovered as just a broader AI play, which is why I believe they're the messy of AI. I think there's a golden path right now for them to monetize what we view as potentially a trillion-dollar market opportunity. And I think investors still have not recognized what this golden goose could be. Yeah, I mean, as we just mentioned, the stocks uh, moved pretty ferociously here um, in the last couple of months and, and since the start of the year. I, when you think about some of these newer AI applications in real time, they're already being applied on the battlefield. Case in point, Ukraine. Palantir is a key example of that. Do you think this is a situation where investors don't fully understand what this company does because so much of it is defense tech? And yes, I realize it's expanding out to the commercial side, too. But there's a lot that they can't talk about, for example. Well, I think that's the biggest misperception. I can tell you, you know, we're talking to many in the 202 area could. The reputation of Palantir is, speaks for itself in terms of, you know, any sort of operations, three-letter agencies. Now, if you're an enterprise CIO, and this is the conversations I've had you're looking toward AI platform approach, Palantir is potentially the first call. And that's why I think in this AI gold rush, what I view as the fourth industrial revolution, of course it's NVIDIA, Microsoft top of the mountain with Nadella. You look at second, third, fourth derivatives, right now Palantir front and center. And that's why I think this is a stock. You look at our bull case model, I think this is ultimately $25. And I think as they execute, more investors start to look at it. Wow, and stocks trading at about uh, seventeen or about seventeen fifty right now. Steve, want to get your thoughts on this, especially since Alex Carp, one of the co-founders and the current CEO of Palantir, uh, did pen a very, a very uh, long, yeah, long. op-ed in the New York Times about AI earlier this week. Yeah, and comparing it to Oppenheimer and how this is really an opportunity. We hear so much. At least this is Carp's view. We hear so much from the community developing AI about being responsible and safe. And, and even years ago, he brings up the examples of Microsoft employees upset about working with the Army and Google employees upset about doing the digital satellite imagery. Uh, he seems to kind of embrace it. I just want to pick out one quote from this. I mean, he calls for a, quote, more intimate collaboration between the state and technology sector, really comparing it to what Oppenheimer did, if you saw the movie or read the book or the history lesson about that, uh, you know, working hand in hand with the government before someone else does it. 
and he, he brings up the case about Ukraine. And I guess the other thing, Dan, I, I was kind of curious for your take on this, because there is a meme stockiness to Palantir, too. I'm wondering how much of that factors in into your calculation. There yeah, too. no doubt. I mean, there's a huge retail presence. Right. And I think, but also, I think this is one where maybe retail has been ahead of institutional in terms of understanding the actual potential AI story. I can tell you, my conversations today, it's really institutional investors being like, okay, what am I missing in this story? Where is the actual total address on market opportunity? And can they go from government to commercial? Because I think when you start to look at it, that for them is really the opportunity. And if you're a CIO of an enterprise, there's no better reference accounts than those in those, the two or two areas. Well, but what does that look like? I mean, if you think about it, okay, so we, we have, it's very opaque what they're doing on the, on the military side of it. I'm just curious, what does that look like on the commercial side? Like, what are you seeing there? And especially, I know they're growing some clients and so forth. What are you seeing there? I'd say from a platform yeah. approach in terms of scale and in terms of actual use cases, they're probably the first call. I, I think they're probably in this market the purest, AI play out there. Now, they built it. Others are coming. But it just speaks to our view. In this fourth industrial revolution, Palantir is going to be a big player. The first time I ever heard a major company say machine learning came from Palantir. Yeah. 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 And, of course, there's applications that, you know, supply chain, which is a big area now for many companies, manufacturing applications. Uh, there's something to be said about, okay, you work with a government. You work, you work on, you know, in a classified capacity. You have these high clearance, you know, high-level clearances for things like cloud applications as well, which only a couple handful of companies do. Palantir is one of them. Um, you're going to keep my data safe. I'm sure there's probably um, that in of itself has a certain cachet with commercial clients, I would imagine. But how does it happen alongside an uncertain macro environment where people are tightening belts? And then, and then to the tightening belts, I think we started to see with IBM. I think we've saw with Microsoft, Google and others. I mean, for big tech, we're seeing an uptick. Ultimately, when it comes to AI, that's potentially 8 to 10 percent of budgets next year. And I do think you talk about reference accounts. You don't got You could sleep well at night when Palantir ultimately has your data in terms of from an AI use case perspective. And they're the only ones out there. They've proven it. Now they're proven in the enterprise. That becomes a bigger piece. That's why then the stock gets re-rated, which is why we're bullish on it. Okay. I just looking ahead to next week, since I have you both here, we've got Amazon on tap and we got Apple on tap. We were just talking about Apple before we started. So let's talk about it here. Sure. Steve, you want to yeah, take it off? I'm, I'm going to repeat myself, Dan, but look, what... What I'm interested in is we've heard such a growth story coming out of these emerging markets. Tim Cook, when I spoke with him a quarter ago, was talking about India record growth, Indonesia record growth. The real question is we're seeing such a downtrend, though, in the biggest markets, United States and China. Maybe China is a little stronger like we talked about. But, you know, these emerging markets where they are seeing such exponential growth, it's just not enough to make up for it. Sales are still going to be down, Morgan. And then there's the question, though, going into the current quarter and into the holiday season. New iPhones are coming out, as they do every September. Mm-hmm. Are they going to raise prices? Because it's this model, the Pro, the more expensive ones that people are going for, despite the fact that they cost $1,000. And then maybe they start the starting price at $1,100, squeeze out more uh, a better average selling price. That's what the street really likes to look for. Dan, what are you looking for next week? Cook's playing chess, others playing checkers. I think this is just going to be another trophy case for Cupertino with the buildup to what I view as a mini super cycle with iPhone 15. Services continues to uptick. I think China's better than feared. And I think those bears, they go back into hibernation mode. I think this is ultimately a stock on its way to $4 trillion by 2025. 
All right. I, th- I think about that. I think about the conversation you and I had on the heels of Microsoft's and Alphabet earnings earlier this week. It sounds like the big tech playbook is still very much in play. If you're a big tech bull, you're going into this weekend with a smile on your face. All right. Dan Ives and Steve Kovac, thanks, thanks for joining thanks. me. Well, quick programming note. Don't miss a special hour-long edition of Tech Check tonight. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, shares of HVAC company Carrier hitting a 52-week high today as a heat wave grips the U.S. Here's what Carrier CEO Dave Gitlin told me on Overtime yesterday. We're starting to see a nice pickup of movement in our air conditioning business, both residential and more globally on the commercial side. But it's not just air conditioning that's seeing an increase in demand. The under-the-radar industry that could also see a boost. It's going to surprise you. Stay with us. Welcome back. Record heat. It's being clocked around the globe this summer, but it's not just hotter temperatures. People are dealing with warmer weather. When people are dealing with warmer weather, I should say, it means more insects are able to thrive. And that could be a big boost to some companies' bottom lines. Pippa Stevens joins me now with the names that could actually profit from pests. Pippa, break this down. <laughs> yeah, Morgan. Well, if you think that you're seeing more bugs then you are not wrong. The nasty weather for the U.S. is paradise for insects. Long, hot summers and shorter winters extend insect life cycles and shorten reproduction timelines. That's good news for pest control companies. The global market is forecast to hit $32 billion by 2027 in what's a highly fragmented industry. Rollins and Rent-O-Kill are the key players here, each with more than 20% market share in the U.S., followed by Ecolab. After that, there are thousands of smaller players. Now, Bank of America recently initiated coverage on Rollins with a buy rating, calling the company recession resilient. The firm added recurring revenue is 80% of total sales and pointed to margin expansion opportunities under a new management team. Plus, last year, the South was the only U.S. region with positive domestic migration, and their higher temps mean demand for pest control is roughly three times the national average. We're also seeing pests more resilient to pesticides. So that's another factor to to throw into all of this as well. So hot weather brings the pests out, makes them more aggressive, and they're more they're more resistant. Um, I don't know why that is. I don't know if you know why that is. Um, but uh, I, I guess just looking at this, is there... Is there an opportunity if it's a fragmented market for, for more uh, deal making to happen and for these companies that already have big pieces of the market to get bigger then? That's exactly right. If you're already a key player, then you can just grow your market share by acquisitions of much smaller names. And when you think about pest services, a lot of it is, you know, you're calling your local guy who comes, you know, w- with his with his different you know, pesticides and things. And so some of those are, are quite regional and concentrated and have a lock on specific markets. And so if you are a big player like Rollins or Rent-O-Kill, they have a lot of subsidi- subsidiary brands. They also have franchises. And so given that they already have that name brand recognition and the know-how, it is a lot easier for them to, you know, capitalize on that position and buy up smaller players. Got it. And of course, it's uh, recession resistant because if you have pests, you're not going to stop spending money on that. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Pippa Stevens, thank you. Wow. Unexpected. (laughs) Still ahead, from burgers to burritos, well, restaurants are trying to figure out new formats. We're going to get the details on the big changes at big chains, including Golden Corral, which is poised to launch a new spinoff this fall. CEO Lance Trenary joins us to discuss. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. It has been a rough week for restaurant stocks. McDonald's, Chipotle, and Sweetgreen are all seeing headwinds in comp sales 
on the horizon. Chipotle management also mentioning it could have it could have to raise prices in the fourth quarter thanks to food and labor inflation. But all three are also experimenting with new formats as customers and consumers taste change. Kate Rogers joins me now with more on that story. Hi, Kate. Hey, Morgan. We'll start with McDonald's announcing on its earnings call it would be testing out a new store format, Cosmics, in a handful of sites in a limited geography early next year. Now, details were very limited from the fast food giant. Cosmic is a McDonaldland character for reference, and the company said that the concept would be small format with all of the DNA of McDonald's, but its own unique personality. Now, onto Chipotle, it's found a lot of success with its Chipotle lanes over the last few years. These are drive-through lanes for mobile order and pickup. Digital orders have made up 38% of food and beverage revenues this quarter. Chipotle is also betting big on these lanes moving ahead. Out of the 47 locations it opened in this most recent quarter, 40 of them had a Chipotle lane. These increased new restaurant sales and margins. Now, sweet Green also opened an automated location in Naperville, Illinois, earlier this year. It's called the Infinite Kitchen. The company's CEO has gone so far as to say that he believes all locations will be automated in the next five years. In its most recent earnings report, the company said the kitchen had higher margins at 26% than its other locations. Now, the key Morgan on some of these changes is twofold. It, number one, gives consumers options on how they want to interact with the brand. And in some cases, it also saves on labor costs in this tight market. Back over to you. Well, of course, as CMB NBC's resident space nerd, Cosmics, has my attention. Um, yeah. but, but, but to pick up on what you just said, I mean, how are these chains evaluating labor costs in this current environment? So back to your question on Cosmics, just to be clear, <laughs> we still don't know what the McDonald's concept looks like. The company's being very tight-lipped on it. Could it be a mobile pickup concept, a ghost kitchen brand, a completely separate brand, or something to that effect? We're going to find out more later this year, they said, but a lot of speculation there. The two other names I mentioned, Chipotle and Sweetgreen, labor costs have to factor in here, particularly with Sweetgreen, which bought a robotic startup called Spice two years ago. So this seems like a natural progression for that company. Chipotle's format, it has many with Chipotle's, but it also opened in 2021 a digital kitchen with a, a Chipotle as well. The store only fulfills mobile orders there. So as mobile and digital sales, Morgan, become more and more important, it kind of seems like these smaller footprint, higher margin locations with different staffing needs may become key because they're perhaps a little easier to staff, a little cheaper to run. They bring in higher volume sales, right? Yeah, makes sense. Of course, uh, we know restaurants are really on the front lines when it comes to some of this automation adoption. Kate Rogers, thank you. Thank you. Well, McDonald's isn't the only restaurant gearing up for a spinoff. Golden Corral, the North Carolina-based buffet chain, is set to debut a fast casual brand this fall called Homeward Kitchen. The move comes as Golden Corral continues to see double-digit growth in same-store sales, proving buffets are not dead in a post-world, a post-COVID world. So joining me now is Golden Corral CEO Lance Trinari. Lance, it's great to have you on the show. Um, uh, thank you. Why are you launching this new concept? Why is that compelling now? Well, first of all, Morgan, thanks so much for having us on. And uh, we love to talk about our business and the industry. And, you know, when we went through COVID, the buffet was inherently not an off-premise experience. And we really didn't have a lot of access for our customers to be able to experience our brand. So we was in the early days of COVID, the buffet was under a tremendous amount of pressure. So we started thinking about what are other ways that customers can access Golden Crowd great comfort foods. And as we began working on it and we saw the pressures that our 14,000 square foot restaurants were under, we said, maybe we need to be thinking about a smaller footprint with better access, meaning drive-through windows and digital access for guests. So that's where the idea originated. And we worked closely with our franchisees over the last 
year and a half to develop this, research it, and we're really excited. The first one will be launching in Southern Pines, North Carolina, in uh, just a few short months. We opened open in, the, uh, in December. I mean, if you look at the stocks of publicly traded fast casual uh, chains, they're really having a moment right now. And I, I wonder what the economics of fast casual is versus the more traditional Golden Corral and if the demographic will be the same or different. You know, the demographics are going to change a bit. We're going for a little bit younger crowd and um, folks that are a little bit more on the move than our current demographics at Golden Corral. But I tell you, our economic uh, uh, conditions at Corral have been unbelievable. Uh, we're experiencing double-digit growth on top of double-digit growth last year. And uh, the buffet is alive and well, as they say. As Thank goodness God loves a buffet because uh, he saw us through the the times in uh, in COVID, and we came out the other side in, in really great shape. But we feel equally as great about uh, Homer Kitchen, and uh, the, the inquiries we've gotten across the country are just amazing. We think it's going to be something that scales very quickly and, and really plays into a great uh, hand for us. How have you factored in inflation into the business? It sounds like consumers are continuing to turn out for Golden Corral. Have you had to raise prices? We have, but I will tell you, um, we've been much more conservative than almost anyone in our segment and certainly the industry. One of our strategies early on in COVID was we said, look, we're not going to cut quality. We're going to make sure we maintain the highest levels of hospitality, and we're known for our variety and abundance. So all of that is off the table. But let's try to be as conservative as possible when we think about what we're going to do with our pricing. And so over the last three years, we've taken about, on average, 10% less price than anyone in our segment. Now, our ticket average, our cost per customer, is almost $3 less than our competitive set. So uh, where we were at par before. And so the only way that we were able to make that work is that we worked really hard on every line item on the P&L, whether it was food or labor costs or even things like insurance or energy management, so that we didn't always have to pass the rising inflationary costs that we were experiencing in food and labor onto our guests. And it's really paid big dividends for us because, as I said, we've been north of 15% of the comp store sales increases this year. Huh. And the, the wonderful thing about that, Morgan, is that it's coming, um, a lot of it's coming in, in meal count increases, more customers coming in our restaurants. We're, we're positive meal count over last year. So um, we're seeing real growth and that's so exciting for us, uh, for what the buffet has been able to experience this year. That is really fascinating. And it, it's a little bit contrarian to what we've heard from some of the companies like the Chipotle's this week, for example, uh, but it sure sounds like it's working for you. Look forward to seeing how Homeward Kitchen performs, too. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Lance Chenery, Golden Crowl CEO. Just getting a quick check on the markets here uh, in these final two day, two hours, I should say, of trading. All the major averages are higher. 4574 uh, is your level for the S&P. Right now, the Dow is up about 140 points, too. That's going to do it for us here at The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Don't give it to you. How about that? 
That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.